Good morning, everyone. Good morning, everyone. <laughs> Please stand for the reading of God's word. Well, you are already standing. So. <laughs> Today's passage will be Psalm 110 on page 509 in the Bibles around the room. When I am finished reading, I will say, this is the word of the Lord. And you will respond, thanks be to God. We say this because we are thankful that God speaks to us. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Dear Jesus, thank you for this day, and thank you for being so good to us. Teach us to lift you up so we can truly appreciate you. Holy Spirit, please preach your word through my dad so we can praise Jesus more and more. Help him not to make mistakes and help him to make people laugh at least once. Be glorified forever and ever. Amen. Please have a seat. She almost got me, man. Good Lord. Actually, she did get me. Y'all gonna have to give me a second. Oh my gosh. Oh, good morning, everybody. It's good to see all of you this morning. Uh, today we're going to be in Psalm 110, like my baby girl just read, uh, and it's all about the exaltation of Christ. That's all this psalm is about. And uh, if you're not familiar with that word, I wasn't when I was going through this text trying to prep for it. Exaltation simply means to lift something up. And so that's what we're going to do in today's sermon. We're going to lift up Christ. Amen. Man, and so I was trying to think of some examples of what that meant. What does it mean to lift up Christ? And uh, it got me thinking back to when I was just getting ready to propose to my wife. I was a young 20-something-year-old guy, and, uh, you know, I got my lady that I'm trying to propose to. So I walk into the, the jewelry store, and I'm, I'm peeking inside, and I don't want to touch anything because if I look at something too hard, it might actually have to make me pay for it. You know, that, <laughs> that nervous feeling you get? So I walk inside. And, I, and I'm taking a look at everything, and the lady there, she, you know, she takes pity on me because she can tell, like, I'm a rookie at this. And uh, she's like, you know, can I, can I help you? I'm like, yeah, I want to propose to my lady friend. Can you help me out? She's like, yeah. So she brings out a bunch of diamonds, and I'm, I'm taking a peek at them, and, like, I really know what I'm looking at, right? I'm just, just taking a peek, and she's like, yeah, rookie. And... Uh, She's like, actually, I want to help you here because I want to actually, I want to help you see the diamond for what it actually is. And the only way that you can do that is to actually pick it up and lift it up into the light. And as it's in the light, you can see its, it's color and its clarity. You're looking for the cut and how it, it shines in the light and makes that prism that makes it look so pretty to where all your girlfriends go, ooh, girl. That's, that's, that's the effect you're looking for there. That's what it means to lift something up. Or maybe you're a sports fan and you remember the Tiger Woods of old, how he would hit some of those amazing shots. And the, the only thing you could do as a fan is just, man, it's just stand up and applaud. You can't believe you can't lift up Tiger in those moments. They'd arrest you. But you can, you can lift yourself up and applaud the effort that he put forth. That's what it means to lift something up. And here's the thing. 
unless we lift something up to study it and admire it, it's difficult for us to truly appreciate all of its intricacies. The new Lion King movie is coming out here pretty soon. Me and my wife are jazzed to go see that. Uh, you remember the scene where Rafiki takes the young lion cub and he lifts him up to the, to the waiting audience? That was Rafiki lifting up young Simba. That's what, that's what we mean by exalting someone. And our psalm today is all about that. It's all about exalting Christ or lifting, it up, lifting him up. But see, we live in a culture where we're tempted to lift up all kinds of things other than Jesus. Satan comes along. He tempts us to lift up our own view of what's right and what's wrong. And he tells, like, whether it's our finances or our politics or just the outright rebellion of God, what the temptation is, is your opinion is what matters most. Don't listen to anybody else. It's all about you. Or maybe it's the world and culture itself where we're tempted to exalt our own pleasurable experiences. So whether it's how we spend our leisure time or uh, how we identify ourselves sexually or even how we spend our entertainment, the message is do whatever feels right to you. Exalt yourself. You are the most important. Or maybe it's even our flesh, the, the own skin that we live in, and we're, we're tempted to exalt our own accomplishments or maybe even sometimes our own faults. So we operate out of pride or fear or guilt or shame. But it's all about us, all in the effort of trying to lift up ourselves. And I have to tell you, the Bible calls that idolatry, and it's a grievous sin against God. Exalting anything else other than Christ is idolatry. But we find ourselves there. But when we're resolutely focused on the exaltation of Christ, the very righteousness and goodness of God starts to overtake our lives. That's what it means to be a Christian. Christ's exaltation in our, in our minds, in our hearts, in our bodies is our invitation to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. Traditionally, uh, Psalm 110 was a royal psalm. It was in celebration uh, in the coronation of a new king. But when the New Testament writers saw this, uh, they saw it as something much more. Psalm 110 is one of the most quoted Old Testament texts in the New Testament. Over, over 30 times, whether it's alluded to or directly quoted, over 30 times, Psalm 110 finds itself in the New Testament. It's in the Gospels, and it's in the book of Acts, it's in the Pauline epistles, it's in the book of Hebrews. Even Peter talks about Psalm 110. Almost as if knowing and understanding the psalm is vitally important for our Christian, our Christian life. So my aim for the sermon is simple today. We're going to exalt Christ because that's what this psalm is doing. Uh, but first I need to set the backdrop for what we're seeing here in Psalm 110. Uh, we're actually going to look at Daniel 7 as a way uh, to really understand Psalm 110 in context. Um, so if you want to turn there with me, it's going to be on page 745, I believe it is. You could take a look at that, uh, like put your finger at Psalm 110 because we're going to come back to it. Don't worry about that. But here's the thing. Uh, here's the message of the Bible. Jesus, the second person of the triune God, sets aside a, par a part of his divinity and comes to earth as a baby, born of the virgin, and live, lives this perfect life, never sinning against God, whether in thought, word, or deed, lives this perfect life. When he's about 33 years old, he's wrongly tried as a criminal, and he's sentenced to death on a cross. After his death, his followers place him in a tomb, and three days later, he rises again. Hallelujah. He does not stay dead, but he rises from the grave. 
Then, after he rises from the grave, uh, amazingly, over the course of 40 days, he interacts with over 500 people. Uh, then, at the, at the end of that 40 days, he ascends back up into the throne room of God. In all of this, every single thing that Jesus went through in his life was foretold by God in his word. So all of it was in accordance with God's plan. And as Christ is ascending back into the throne room of God, that's where we find ourselves in Daniel uh, chapter 7. So let's, let's look at that. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. It says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. That's a description of Jesus. And he came, or, or he came up to the ancients of days. That's, that's God the Father. And he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So as we're looking at that and we're reading it, we're seeing this, this heavenly scene where Jesus is riding up on a cloud and he's coming into the throne room of God. And as he's approaching God the Father, God offers him a place at his right hand. He says, son, come and sit. And it's almost as if David becomes a fly on the wall because he's overhearing this conversation between the father and the son. And that's what's recorded in Psalm 110. It's this, it's this intimate conversation between the father and the son. And so let's take a look at it because by the grace of God, because David was a fly on the wall, we get to be a fly on the wall. How cool is that? So let's go back to Psalm 110, page 509. We're going to find out why Christ should be exalted. And that's all we're going to be talking about. This, this psalm talks about why Christ should be exalted. And the first reason he should be exalted is because the Father exalts the Son. The Father lifts him up. Why? Why does the Father lift up the, the Son? Because he's the Lord. Look at verse 1. It says, the Lord says to my Lord. If you're familiar with how the Bible is translated, it wasn't originally written in English. Uh, King James did not originate the Bible. Just... So we're clear on that. <clears throat> when, it's, when it has that all caps Lord, it's actually talking about Yahweh, God the Father, the person that's in the burning bush that had identified himself as the I am. That's what Yahweh translates into. So it says, Yahweh says to my Lord, Lord here, uh, the original word for that is Adonai. And Adonai can be used in, in a lot of different contexts, whether it's a person's husband or, uh, or a boss or, or something like that, a master. It's used in a lot of different contexts. But remember, this is King David writing this psalm. Who's greater than King David at this time? Israel was the top dog on the block, and, and, and King David was the leader of Israel. Who is greater than David? He wouldn't have considered anyone greater than himself. So what's this song? What is David talking about? The Lord Yahweh says to my Lord. I think Jesus poses the same question in Matthew chapter 22. As he's interacting with the, the Pharisees, they were always trying to trip him up on some stuff, always, always acting a fool. Um, but this time Jesus flips the script on and he asks them a question. Look what it says in uh, Matthew 22 verse 41. It says, now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, who do you think, uh, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. 
And he said to them, how is then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And what Jesus is getting at, how can a person be both a person's ancestor and their descendant? How do you make, how do you make that work out? Doesn't make sense logically. So he's trying, to, he's trying to get them to realize, hey, Psalm 110 is talking about me. And I, and I love that the Bible records this in here. He says, uh, verse 46, and no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. <laughs> Talk about a mic drop. I wish y'all would say something else to me. That's basically what Jesus said. But the question remains, how can someone be David's Lord who is both his ancestor, and his descendant. We as Christians believe that the answer is found in the God-man of Jesus Christ himself. Jesus was trying to help them understand that it, it's him that this psalm is talking about. Jesus, the God-man, existed before time began, and then at the proper time, he entered into our reality. I think John 1 says it best. It says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And that the word put on flesh and dwelt among us. You know Jesus' middle name? Emmanuel. Which translates into God is with us. And he always has been. That's how Jesus is able to be both David's ancestor and his descendant. And David is recognizing the greatness of Jesus and calls him his Lord. And he says to him, he says, uh, sit at my right hand. Why does, why does God glorify the son? Why is he glorifying here and, and telling him to sit down at his right hand? What's the significance of David sitting down or excuse me, Jesus sitting down? It's because his work was done. Everything that God needed him to do to reconcile our relationship, he accomplished including providing payment for the sins of God's people, mending the relationship that was between them, coming to seek and save the lost, perfectly fulfilling every law of God, making a way for non-Jewish Gentiles to be grafted into the family of God, fulfilling over 300 Old Testament prophecies. Over 300 Old Testament prophecies. I want, you, I want you guys to wrap your heads around that. I, I, I put this up, this statistic. We, we live in Nevada. We're, we're a gambling town. Look at the odds of this. The odds of one person fulfilling eight prophecies is one and that's 17 zeros. 100 quadrillion? Math teacher. 100 quadrillion. Impossible number. The, the, the odds of one person fulfilling 48 prophecies, one chance, and that's way too many zeros, is 157 zeros. The odds of somebody doing that, just 48 prophecies. The odds of someone fulfilling over 300 prophecies, psh, only Jesus. Only Jesus could come along and fulfill every single word that the Old Testament said about him. And y'all, uh, y'all know me. This is the opportunity for you to speak up and say Amen. We, we serve a mighty God that is fulfilling every single thing that was written about him. And as he's up on the cross, 
as he's up there and he's paying the penalty for sin, as he's up there and he's, he's making a way for God to be reconciled with his people, he cries out with his last breath, it's finished. I've done it all. There's nothing left to be done. He had accomplished it all. And then God invites them to come and sit in his right hand. That, that right hand, it's a symbol of, of power and authority. Essentially, a king, when he would invite someone to sit in his right hand, he was saying to them, I want you to share in all of my authority. Jesus belonged there. That was his rightful place. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. It says this, have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Why else does God exalt the son here in verse one? We haven't made it past verse one yet, y'all. I'm excited about this text. Man, why else is, is God exalting the son? Um, because he's the conqueror. He says, sit in my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Uh, that little phrase there, until I make your enemies your footstool. It was actually ancient Near East terminology for the, to the total conquest of your enemies. Essentially, it was a word picture that, that a king would, would literally put his foot on the neck of all of his enemies. It says, sit in my right hand until I put my foot on the neck of every single thing that's opposed to you, my son. Whew. The father exalts the son because he deserves it. He proved that he's worthy to sit on the throne and share in power with God the father. He's God in the flesh, our Lord, our mighty conqueror. There's absolutely no one greater. But he's also uh, our ruling savior. Look at what it says in verse two. It says, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Uh, for Jews, when they heard that word Zion, they would have thought uh, to the big hill that's in Jerusalem where the temple uh, mount now sits. It's the, it's the holiest place for, for Jewish people. They would have thought of that as Zion, the, king where, uh, the place where King David uh, set up his rule. That's what they would have thought of. Uh, but for us in the church right now, when we think of Zion, it's the place where God reigns. It's his holy throne room. It's the place where we go that after we perish away from these bodies, we go and stand before Father, and he welcomes us home saying, well done, good and faithful servant. That's the place of Zion. And he says, the Lord sends forth from Zion his mighty scepter. Uh, if you know what a scepter is, a scepter uh, is something the king would hold uh, as a symbol of his power and authority. You ever see those old pictures as a king is sitting on the throne, and he's holding a scepter in his hand looking super awkward, like you should put it down every now and then? <clears throat> That was, that was the scepter. That was a symbol of his power. I made the mistake a few weeks back of giving my son one of those lightsabers, you know, the ones where you flick it out and it extends out, because uh, now he's just chasing his brother and sister around like, ah! That's the, that's the symbol of his power. He's channeling his inner grace goal when he's, got, when he's holding the sword, and the little one can't get away fast enough because his head is a third of his body. 
And um, <clears throat> what is Jesus' scepter? What's the symbol of his power? I think Romans 1 answers that for us. Romans 1 says this. It says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation. Every time the preached word is put forth, God exercises his power in this world. Every time you tell your friends about the goodness of Christ, Christ is exercising power over their lives. That is the preached word. Since, since man rebelled from God's perfect creation, now every aspect of our lives is infected by sin, like some kind of sickness. And it keeps us away from the presence of God. And as a remedy to this sin sickness, God sent his son to die on our behalf to give us a cure for this sickness. And all we're asked to do in response is to reject the poison and accept the cure. It's good news. It means we don't have to continue to be separated from God. We could be brought in as adopted children. Because now every time a sin-sick sinner renounces the kingdom of darkness and is brought into Jesus' marvelous light, God is ruling and reigning right now. We don't have to wait until Jesus comes back to see the rule of Christ. He's ruling and reigning right now. Right from where he's at. And 1 Corinthians kind of talks about that a little bit. It says... Um, Verse 25, for he must reign until he has put his enemies under his feet. He must reign right now until every single enemy of Christ is put under his feet. Are there enemies of Christ that are still in the world today? Absolutely. Every time someone experiences a, a, a divorce... Every time someone experiences the loss of a child, every time someone gets sick, every natural disaster, every horrible boss, people that are against God in the streets, people are getting arrested for proclaiming Christ, people living their own lives and their own selfishness. They're enemies of the ways of God. And God said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reign until I put all of them up under my feet. And I will have my victory. This is, good news. this is good news for us too. It means that there's nothing that Christ can't overcome. There's nothing that he's not in rule over. Absolutely nothing. Everything, everything is under his feet to include death itself. Did you know when we die from these bodies, that's not the end of us? We go and experience God, the Father, for all eternity, face to face. face to face, amen. That's good news for us. You want to know why? Because he's in control of everything. Nothing's catching him off guard. Nobody can sucker punch him with anything. <laughs> Nothing's too difficult for him to overcome. Even if you're in the midst of tragedy, Jesus still exercises his power over your difficult times. And if Christ is for us, church, who in the world can be against us? Nothing. Jesus is on the throne. His rule, his gospel message is extending out from Zion into the hearts of God's chosen children, saving them from the agonies of hell. Nothing can overthrow his rule. So let's lift him up. He deserves to be exalted. He deserves to be lifted up. He is truly our ruling savior. Let's look at verse three. 
see how uh, he should be exalted because he's our warrior general. It says verse three, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Uh, Nolly was, was reading this. She was practicing for us. She was like, that's a lot of yous or rhymes with yous. Do you? I'm like, yeah, I, I get it. The Bible's written weird sometimes. But even I, at a point, had to go look up some commentaries. Like, what is this talking about? It says, on the day uh, of your power, your people will freely come. Notice it didn't say all people will freely come. It says your people will freely come. Your people will offer themselves freely. Not the enemies of God. Which, by the way, we used to be. Don't get all uppity and forget the fact that we were once enemies of God. That the, that the wrath of God was for us too. But then when, when God, when he removed that heart of stone and gave us this heart of flesh, when he took the scales off our eyes and we could see him for how beautiful he was, when he breathed life into our spiritually dead bodies, we didn't have to be drugged. We came freely. We saw how beautiful and good it was. That's the power of God. That's that, that's that thing that Romans 1 was talking about. It's the power of God for salvation. And it says, that's going to happen. People will offer themselves freely on the day of God's, of Jesus' power. In other words, it's translated as the day when Jesus leads his army. And this is talking about the second coming of Christ. And the Bible describes this in some pretty extreme ways. It calls it uh, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord's wrath, the great and terrible day of the Lord, or great and awesome day of the Lord. This is the day when Jesus is coming back. And it's no more like nicey, nicey, uh, flower in the ear, Jesus, that's your homeboy. This is, this is Jesus. This is the Lion of Judah that's coming back with his army, that's getting ready to put his foot on the neck of any enemy that stands in his way. It says that day, on the day of his power, his, his people are going to come clothed in holy garments. I remember when me and my wife were first getting together, we were in our dating phase. Uh, because I was in the military, and it would be like weeks or months before uh, we would see each other again. She told me uh, a lot later on, I wish she would tell me earlier, I wore the same shirt to our first like five dates. <laughs> the same exact shirt over and over. I thought I was fresh. Like I'm, I'm coming, I'm rolling up on her like, what's up? She was like, no, you wore the same shirt the first five times. I thought you were a hobo, she told me. <laughs> I thought you only had the one shirt. I was, so she, part, she started buying me clothes, like she started feeling sorry for me, right? <laughs> my best shirt, and it was my best shirt. It was a nice shirt. My, my best shirt was not enough for me to secure a place in her heart. Church, that's the same thing with us in Christ. The Bible says that all of our righteous deeds, they're like filthy rags to God. When we think we're coming with our best, God is like, what is this? Why are you still wearing that? There's no way I can let you into my house wearing that. What needs to happen? What needs to happen is we need something new. We need to be cleaned up. 
The Bible says that Jesus comes along and he bears our iniquities. He takes everything that's dirty about us, he puts it on himself, and he, he cleans us from the inside out, and then he gives us his holy garments. It's a crazy exchange. Everything that Christ did right, he imputes to us as if we did it. Those are our holy garments. On the day of the Lord, on the day of Christ's second coming, we're coming back with Christ as he's getting ready to dominate his enemies, and we're clothed in Christ's righteousness. Wow, what a day. That's going to be awesome. It says, on that day, um, it says, from the, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. I really had a hard time with that. Um, but here's the thing. The dew, if you've ever been to the desert, uh, first thing in the morning, there's like, there's just dew everywhere, all over the desert. And it's, it's the way that the desert refreshes itself in the morning. And God is essentially saying, um, on that day, my people are going to be as numerous as the dew that's on the ground. And that, that gets you thinking back to God making a similar promise to Abraham. He says, Abraham, one day your family is going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And now by faith, when we enter into Christ, we are children of Abraham. And now we're also represented here as the dew of the morning. I'm impressed, man. This, this, is a good, this is a good word. Verse 4 says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Uh, I am not going to get super on the whole Melchizedek thing uh, because it is deep. Matter of fact, uh, if you want to read up on how this whole Melchizedek thing is, is even a thing, uh, read Hebrews chapters 5 through 8. It's a, it's a pastor's like, favorite subject because the Bible preaches itself right there. All we got to do is read it. Um, but Hebrews chapters 5 through 8 talks about how Christ is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Um, but I want to read us a little bit about who this Melchizedek is and, and why it, it says it like this. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 1 says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth, of, a tenth part of everything. He is by first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. That's what Melchizedek literally means, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem. That is, he's king of peace. Salem translates into peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. Uh, now, there's a way that we can read the whole Melchizedek thing and try to get super deep into it. Like, how is Jesus, like, related to him? And is this a pre-appearance of Christ? And there's all kinds of things we could try to do with this text. But I don't want you to miss the point of what it's trying to say here. Uh, Jesus is someone like Melchizedek. Melchizedek shows up three times in the Bible. Genesis, here in Psalm 110, and then in Hebrews. Jesus is like a Melchizedek. And here's how. He is, um, he's called the king of righteousness, Melchizedek is. The Bible describes Jesus as the righteousness of God. It says he's king of Salem. The name for Christ is the prince of peace. It says of, of Melchizedek that he'll have no beginning or end. Jesus said the same thing. I am the alpha and the omega, 
I am the beginning and the end. Jesus is saying, this, this passage is talking about me. Melchizedek is somebody like me. It shouldn't be the other way around, but you guys get it. And then we have these Old Testament priests. Like, what, what do priests have to do with us today? Uh, I would say a priest is someone who, who acts almost like our defense lawyer. A priest was someone who went into the temple of God when the people of God would come to the temple and they're offering their sins and they're, they're coming for, for reconciliation with God. A priest would stand uh, in front of God, the judge, almost like a defense lawyer. And he's, he's offering uh, payment for their sins and he's, he's bringing them into the presence of God. So like I said, it's kind of like a defense lawyer. Um, I remember before... Before I went into the military, I got into some legal trouble. <gasps> Shocker. It's Pastor Shay. And uh, I actually, I got caught shoplifting. I thought I was, I don't know. I don't know. Pray for me. <clears throat> but I got caught, and I went in front of the judge. And I had to stand there as the prosecuting attorney just told the judge everything I did wrong, how, how they wanted to press charges because I had brought damage to the store's reputation and I damaged their property and I couldn't, I couldn't refute any of it. I did it all. But here I am standing on my side and there's no one to come to my rescue. There's no one to come to my aid. I just have to take whatever punishment's coming my way. And the hopeless feeling that you have as you're just standing there taking it. Maybe, maybe you remember getting in trouble in school when you know you did some stuff wrong. And the, and the principal is like, you did this, and there's no one to stick up for you. There's no parent to come in and try to rescue you. That's what it feels like. That, hope, that hopelessness is what happens when we don't have an advocate standing in, in, our, in our stead. But here's the thing. Because Christ ascended to the throne room of heaven, he stands in front of God the Father and says, yeah, I know that they blew it again. Yeah, I know that they sinned again. Yeah, I know everything this this." Dude is saying over here is true, that, that the accuser is saying is true, but they're mine. I bought them with my own blood. And there's nothing that, that can take them out of my hands. Dad, I vouch for them. We have an advocate that's standing in front of God right now. You ever wonder why you're still a Christian? Why you haven't fallen away from the faith? You, you ever wonder why the church is even still a thing? This is, this is over 2,000 years old. You ever wonder why people are still coming to faith? It's because we have a great high priest that's standing in front of God, constantly praying for us, constantly lobbying for us on our behalf, constantly saying to the Father, no, they're mine. I get it, but they're mine. I get it, but they're mine. Every time we make a mistake, every time we slip up, every time our eye wanders off in the wrong direction, every time our tongue slips out in the wrong way, Jesus is saying, but they're mine. I, I get it, but I, I bought them. I paid for them. I want them to spend eternity with me. What a great high priest. What a great defense lawyer. Not only that, but he's, he's making sacrifices for our sins. 2 Corinthians talks about how uh, that God made Jesus to be sin, even though he didn't know any sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. We should exalt Christ because when he ascended to the throne, he became our perfect high priest. He's, he's the exact thing that we need in front of the Father. We should always be exalting him. But not only is he our defense lawyer, he's also our righteous judge. Um, and this is the part where people typically start to take issue with the nature of Jesus. Let's, let's read in verse 5. 
says, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. He will lift up his head. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Now, sometimes when we read this, I feel like, like in our way of thinking, Jesus sometimes seems incompatible with himself, almost like we're serving this bipolar schizophrenic. Like, you, you say you love me, but then what is this thing over here? All right? But, but God's not a bipolar schizophrenic. Uh, he's both and. He is both loving and wrathful. It's a part of his nature. He is both merciful and vengeful at the exact same time. He is both the tender lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. And he's also the conquering lion of the tribe of Judah that will put his enemies under his feet one day. He's both at the same time. And church, the only way, the only way that we can get past the wrath of God is through repentance and baptism. We don't want to be the enemies of God. There's only one way to avoid his wrath. He's going to come and he's going to, he's going to conquer all of his enemies unless we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. When Peter was preaching in the book of Acts, he's, he's telling the, uh, the people there the exact same thing. And the Bible says they're cut to the heart. They're, they're, they're panicking. They're trying to figure it out. How, how do we avoid this wrath of God? We, we put Jesus to death. What do we do? And there it says this. It says, and Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all those who are far off, everyone who the Lord God calls to himself. Man, if, if this passage, if it sparks something in you and you're like, oh man, I don't want to face the wrath of God. Maybe, maybe this is your invitation. Maybe this is your invitation for repentance because the Bible says that there's no more condemnation left for those who are in Christ. So if something inside of you is, is churning, you're like, oh man, I don't want to see this day of wrath. Maybe this is Psalm 110's way of, of of pointing some things out to you. You should listen to it. Verse seven says that uh, he will drink from the brook by the way, and therefore he will lift up his head. This is another time where I had to go look up what the heck they were talking about, to be quite honest. And um, once again, this passage is describing the second coming of Jesus, but it's also pointing back, if you're familiar with the Bible, remember back to the book of Judges? And there was this guy, Gideon, um, Gideon was a man of the Lord, and, and God said to Gideon, I want you to rescue my people from the, Midian, from the Midianites, and so I want you to gather an army together. And so Gideon does. He gathers an army together, and 22,000 men show up, ready for war. And God says, you know what? Um, I actually want to fight this battle. I'm going to need you to send some of them home. So I want you to ask who's scared, and who's ever scared, just let them go home. So he does. 10,000 people remain behind. And God's like, you know what? I want my glory. Um, I, I feel like if, if you take 10,000 men to war, you're going to try to be a glory hog and think you did something about this. I want to be glorified. And so he tells him, he's like, send the men down to the brook. 
uh, and have them drink out of the water. And for those who, who bend down and they're, and they're tactical and they're drinking because, you know, they're, they're looking for an enemy, I want you to separate those from the ones who just kind of randomly, weirdly stick their face in the water and take a drink. And so he does. And 300 men stick their faces in the water. And he says, I want, <laughs> I want those guys because they're not going to take any glory from me. And as the men lift their faces out of the brook from a drink, it's time to go to war. And that's what that's alluding to here. As Jesus sticks his face in the water and he lifts his head, it's time to go to war. It's time for the day of the Lord's wrath. The wrath of the lamb is to be revealed. (laughs) Revelation 6 talks about this. Look at what it says in Revelation 6. Verse 15 says, uh, then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is sitting on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the day of the, uh, the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? Jesus is coming to war. It's time for the wrath of the lamb to be revealed. And I'll be honest, you don't want to be on Jesus' opposing side. You don't want to be found securing yourself and exalting a different kingdom than Christ's kingdom. I don't care how long you've been in faith. I don't care if you've been a Christian for 20 seconds or if you've been a Christian for, or a Christian for 50 years. If you're putting anything above Christ, Christ has a problem with that. And he will crush every single one of his enemies. But how does this impact us today? How does the story of Christ's ascension and his his exaltation, what does that do for us today? And I'll just just ask, uh, are you in a place where you feel like your faith seems dry? Or are you just not seeing God move in your life? Or or maybe there's this sin, this, this thing that you have in your life that just takes your attention away from Christ. Maybe you've forgotten. Maybe you've forgotten what it's like to just rest and enjoy Christ. Maybe you've forgotten how to lift him up to the light so you can see all of his intricacies. And if that's you, lift him up. Come back to the the love of your youth. Ask the spirit to refresh your eyes and, and give you a new heart so you can appreciate Christ more. Or maybe you're someone who's, who's skeptical about this whole, like, who this Jesus dude is, whoever he is, right? <sighs> Grab a Bible. Read it. Start, start in the book of Luke and then read it to the end. And just see how the Bible just lifts Christ up, like, all the time. And then ask the Spirit to reveal to you, like, who is this Jesus guy? Why does he matter in my life? Grab a pastor. Ask us some questions. This, this is kind of our job. It's our gig. Come ask us questions. What do you have to lose? My my, my warning stands. You don't want to be on Jesus' opposing side. How do we do this practically? How how do we lift up Christ? It's not like we can just grab him by the shirt and ha. It's not like we can do that. How do we lift Christ up? Practically, this may be like praising him with our words, with with our bodies, with our minds. As we're in church, it's, it's lifting up our hands in worship. Maybe it's bowing at his feet. 
Maybe it's giving the pastor some hallelujahs and some amens. Hallelujah. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> you know what that does to our spirits? It points us up. It puts our gaze on Christ. And we say that's worthy to be praised. Forget whatever's coming on TV next or Stranger Things or, or whatever else. That's not worthy to be praised, but Christ is. Lift our voices to him. That's a practical way that we can do it. We can also read and rest in his word. You ever read the Psalms and you come across this word, Selah? You know what that word is there for? It's for you to pause and reflect on what you just read. It's for you to read and then step back and say, oh my goodness, is that for me? I wish the Bible had more of those. So we can come through the word and you can say, whoa, wait a minute. Christ took my filthiness. He gave me his righteousness. Oh my God. What a treat. It's better than a sweet frog. Maybe talking about them with your friends. Conversations ever wander off into what's the, what's the better beer? Instead, let your conversation wander into like, what's, what's, what's Christ done for you today? Would you read good about Christ today? Let's, let's celebrate it together. Let's celebrate his ascension and his exaltation. Because this story is vitally important to our faith. Because in it, we see, when we see Christ lifted up and we realize that we have this never-tiring advocate watching out for us. We can rely on the power of the gospel that's coming out of heaven, not only to save us, but then to help us talk to other people about who Christ is. And we have this hope that one day we're going to end up standing victorious with Christ as we're watching as he's putting his foot on the neck of every enemy, ours and his. Amen? Amen. Let's lift up Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this text. Thank you that we get an opportunity just to see you high and lifted up, shining in the light of your glory. Thank you that we can, we can look to something else besides our temporary faults and, and the things that are not worthy of your praise. But you are. You are a mighty high priest. You're our righteous judge that's going to come away and do away with evil. You're our great Lord who's always been there, the beginning and the end, never faltering, never let anything sweat you. God, you are so good, and your mercy endures forever. Be to us everything we need, Lord Jesus. It's in your name I pray. Amen.